this week we come to a passage that is short, four verses, uh, but it's pretty well known. We come to a story that is described by many as a beautiful story. Uh, it's a story known as the widow's gift or the widow's might. And in this story, we find Jesus pointing out this poor widow who gives all she has to live on. But there's something interesting about this passage, about these four verses. And what's interesting is this, is that in short, it's the interpretation, the general interpretation of this narrative, of this story. The overwhelming interpretation from commentaries and pastors is that the story is teaching, on a, uh, giving us a lesson about giving. Uh, it's the lesson on how we should think about giving and practice giving as it relates to God. And so you'll hear commentators or pastors say, uh, something to the effect of that it's on measuring of the gifts or it's an exhortation to give until it hurts. Uh, it's an example of some virtue that we should acquire. Many pastors, teachers use this story to encourage sacrificial giving. To say that Jesus wants us to give more of our resources, more of our time and talents and money to the church just like this widow. Some say sacrificial giving is about justice and if the widow can give everything she has to live on, it's only just that you and I, who have more, give more of our abundance. Some will argue that its story teaches that the true measure of a gift is not what is given, but what is withheld. Not the amount of the gift, but the amount the giver kept back from giving. Others view this, gift, view this as a gift's value is directly related to the attitude in which it's given. Was it given selflessly, humbly, as an expression of love and devotion to God? Or was it just given out of obligation? Uh, was it given out of a sense of, I have to do this in order to please God? And regardless of the exact interpretation, what you find again and again and again is that people, interpreters, use this, these four verses to teach that Jesus is praising this poor widow for her sacrificial heart and actions and that we should follow her example. But is that the case? Is that Jesus' point from this story? Well, I don't think so. I don't think this is what Jesus is teaching at all. In fact, I think there's a much better interpretation of this story that we should consider. And what is that? What is the better interpretation? Well, this story is really a condemnation and rebuke of the religious leaders of Israel. The scribes, the Pharisees, the widow's gift is not an example of how we should give, but rather it's an example and an illustration of how the Pharisees devoured widows. This widow is an example of the religious abuse that was taking place at the hands of the Pharisees and scribes, those who were leaders over the nation of Israel. It's an example of how they used religion for their own material gain at the expense of those who were weaker and who they should have been taken care of. As one commentator put it, what is clear from the passage is that the widow is not the hero of the story, but the victim duped into giving all she had by the false promise of Jewish legalism, that doing so would bring blessing. Rather, she's a tragic example of how the corrupt religious system mistreated widows. I think that is really the thrust of what is going on, that this story is an illustration of the corruption that was taking place in the nation of Israel. 
Not a lesson on how we should give, but why? Why is this the better interpretation, at least in my opinion and others' opinions? Well, four reasons this morning I want to give you as to why I think this is the more appropriate way to understand what this passage is teaching. The first of the four reasons is this, is what Jesus says and doesn't say. I think if you ask yourself this question as you're looking at the text, what does the text tell us? And what does it not tell us? What does Jesus say and what does he not say? Well, we'll start first with what does Jesus tell us? Well, what Jesus tells us is this. There's four things. First, Jesus tells us that rich people and a poor widow made offerings. Verse 1, he looked up, saw the rich dropping in their offerings into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow dropping in two tiny coins. Now, scholars uh, tell us that the treasury in the temple was not where the money was kept, but where money was rather given. And there are approximately 13 trumpet-shaped chests where people would go to make their offerings on behalf of the poor as well to help out with the expenses of the temple. And these chests were put at, or they were situated in what was known as the women's court of the temple. Uh, This area was not restricted exclusively to women, but it was the place where women could come without any restrictions. And here what Jesus says, he's, he's in this part of the temple, and he notices the rich giving, and then he points out and sees this poor widow who gives. Number two, Jesus tells us the widow's gift is different from the rich in verse four. For all these people have put in their gifts out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, has put in all she had to live on. The word for rich, as we'd understand it, refers to somebody who has enough. They're fully supplied. While the word for poor that Luke uses is to communicate that this woman is poverty-stricken, destitute. And all she has is two tiny coins, which in fact were the smallest denomination of Jewish currency, and therefore a tiny fraction of what the rich would have given. And Jesus is pointing this out, that her gift is different from the rich. She's giving out of her poverty, they were giving out of their abundance. Number three, Jesus tells us that the widow gave up everything she had to live on. Verse four, for all these people have put in their gifts out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, has put in all she had to live on. That all she had were these two coins. And after she gave those two coins, she had nothing. The rich who gave, they had a surplus. They had plenty left over, but this woman had nothing. She was left with no money to her name. Number four, Jesus tells us the widow has given more. Truly, I tell you, he said, This poor widow has put in more than all of them. What does he mean she's put in more? Well, he means, I think, that her gift is is a greater proportion of her assets, right? She gave it all while the rich had something left. One commentator said, if the measure be what is left over after giving, she certainly outdistanced them all. For she gave out of, or they gave out of their abundance and thus had much left over. She gave all she had. So this is what Jesus points out and he tells us about the situation that's happening in the temple It related to giving. But what does Jesus not say? What does he not tell us, which I think is actually more important? Well, there's one main thing, and it's this. Jesus does not tell us how he feels about the widow's giving. You know, the tendency is to say that Jesus approves of and delights in her behavior, in her giving, and that we are therefore to follow that example. But if we're honest, I think that's more of a preconceived notion that we bring into the text rather than the clear teaching of the text. 
When we look at the text, we don't see Jesus commending her at all. He says, truly, I say, yes, she gave more than everybody else, but he doesn't say, then, go and do likewise. Well, we don't see Jesus ever commending her behavior. As one person put it, words of praise are absent. He doesn't turn and look to his disciples and then say, go do what this woman did, which is what was common for Jesus to do. When he was teaching his disciples something and he wanted them to do that, he would say, go and do likewise. But rather, what we see Jesus doing is he's just making a statement. He's just stating what happened. He's just relaying the facts, the data to us. In the temple, richer giving, this poor widow gives two coins, the smallest denomination there was in the life of Israel, a fraction of what the rich would have given. And after she gave it to him, she had nothing left. As one commentator said, there's no judgment made regarding the true nature of her act. Nor is anything said about her attitude or the spirit in which her gift was given. And since Jesus made no point about giving, neither should the interpreter or we. Neither should we. I don't think we should arrive to some conclusions about giving. Why? Because that is not Jesus' point. He wasn't using her as an example of how to give. He wasn't using her as a a teaching point on how we should think about giving, but rather as an example of the corrupt religious system that exploited her, that was ran and headed by the Pharisees and the scribes. So the first reason is what Jesus does say and doesn't say. Number two, Judaism taught that salvation could be earned. You will find this in Judaism. And the assumption is that this woman was giving out of a heart of generosity, of joy, of devotion to God. But I think that's something we just read into the text. And it's something we read into the text because we know that's how the scripture teaches us to give. 2 Corinthians teaches us to be cheerful givers, to be generous givers. But notice in the text, that is never said. So to to say that that is what Jesus is teaching is only to assume. It's not to actually pull off or draw from the text itself. That's never directly stated or communicated. In fact, What you find in the nation of Israel is there's a pressure to give. Why? Well, the Jews were taught to give all they could, not only because it would be multiplied and returned to them, but also as works that would gain salvation. Rabbis said that with alms, one purchases his redemption. In the book of Tobit, it says, it's good to do alms rather than to treasure up gold. For alms deliver from death, And this will purge away every sin. In Syriac 3, it says, alms will atone for sin. And the Talmud says, almsgiving is more excellent than offerings and is equal to the whole law. So in the nation of Israel, what would happen is that people began to teach that when you give, especially to the poor, you're never closer to the heart of God. And so if you give to the poor, surely you're going to receive blessing and favor from God. And so you can see how that works down this road of, you need to give in order to be saved. And so it has to be asked of the widow, was the widow super generous or was she just trying to work her way to salvation? Was she just giving out of obligation? Was she giving because she had to? Because she desired a blessing from God? I think it's quite likely that she was hoping, she was giving out of hope to purchase blessing through following this Jewish religious system's legalistic requirements. 
Therefore, to assume that Jesus is commending her giving is simply, I think, an assumption that we make, and a rather weak one at that, given what Judaism taught about money in relationship to salvation. So again, the second reason Judaism taught that salvation could be earned through good deeds, particularly giving. Number three is the context of the story, and I think this is the most important piece, is what is the context in which this story, these four verses, sits? What is happening? What's going on in the life of Jesus as well as what are the surrounding passages in the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, surrounding this story? What is the context? Well, I broke it into two parts. The first is the timing. Where are we at in the life and ministry of Jesus right now? This is really important. It's the last week of Jesus' life, and it's Passover week, arguably the most important time of the year and the busiest time of the year at the temple. Thousands and thousands of Jews would come from throughout the Roman Empire to bring sacrifices, to enjoy the celebration. And if you wanted to celebrate the Passover to its fullest, you would go to Jerusalem. It's kind of like, at least in our minds, the idea if you want to celebrate New Year's Eve to the fullest, you go to like New York City, at least so people say. I don't know if that's really true. I'm pretty content being at home and going to bed at 11 o'clock as soon as the ball drops. But that's the idea. That all these people would travel in from, from all around the Roman Empire for this celebration, for the Passover. And this is where we find Jesus. He's in Jerusalem. He's in the temple. And he's teaching. There's thousands gathered. And this brings us to the teaching intention piece of the context. That What is Jesus' message? Well, Jesus' messages were directly in the face of or in conflict with the Pharisees. He was directly challenging and highly critical of the temple and the religious authorities. You know, for the Pharisees, this was kind of their time to shine. This was Passover. But Jesus was not going along with their game plan. He came in and he is disruptive. He's calling them out. That what we find then in this story is that the story rather of the widow's gift it follows a series of tense interactions between jesus and the religious authorities and what i want you to do or i want to do is i want to walk you through this because part of understanding how to interpret the bible it involves the context and not just the context of like what is the verse right before and the verse right after sometimes that's important but sometimes it's what about the chapter before the chapter after you have to look at, to understand the flow. See, the, the gospel of Luke, Luke is not just writing down things, like he's just kind of writing events down in random order. He's creating a particular argument and narrative. That's why you'll find in the gospels, there's certain stories that are placed in different places because they're trying to make a different point. John is trying to make a particular point as he's writing his gospel. They're all driving to the same point about Jesus, but there's a flow, there's an argument, there's a context to what's going on. What we find here before this event, or the widow's might, is that we find Jesus. He's entering into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry. He's riding in on a donkey. There's thousands praising him. And then what do we find the, the teachers or the, the Pharisees doing? Well, verse 39 of Luke 19, the Pharisees, some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. The Pharisees hated what was going on. 
Remember, again, it's Passover week. It's like their time to shine, and Jesus is riding in on a donkey, fulfilling the prophecy in Zechariah. People are praising him, hailing him as the king, stealing the attention and thunder away from the Pharisees, and they say, teacher, rebuke them, silence them. And then we see Jesus. In verse 41, he approaches the city of Jerusalem, and he's weeping or sobbing. Why is he weeping and sobbing? Well, he says, if you knew this day what would bring peace... But now it's hidden from your eyes, for the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone on another in your midst. Why? Because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. This was not commending a a statement of commendation, but this was a statement of criticism of judgment. And following that statement, following Jesus weeping over the nation of Israel, is Jesus cleansing the temple. He enters into the temple and begins to throw out all those who are selling. John tells us he made a whip out of cords and he began to flip over the money changers' tables, driving out what was happening, rebuking them, saying, it is written, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Imagine hearing that. You're the religious authorities running the temple, the Pharisees, the scribes, and what you're told is you have taken the word of God, the temple of God, God himself, and you have used him for profit and gain. A den of thieves, you're robbing the very people who have come to worship God. You're using the worship of God as a way to make money. And he says every day he was, in the te- or he was teaching in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders, of the leaders of the people were looking for a way to kill him. The tension is rising. We know the culmination of the end of the week of the Passover is the death of Jesus. And then Jesus, to continue to stick his finger in the eye of the Pharisees, shares a parable, the parable of the vineyard owner. And the parable of the vineyard owner is spoken in the leaders of Israel. They understand that it's spoken directly against them. Verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests looked for a way to get their hands on him that very hour because they knew he had told this parable against them. They knew. They knew that Jesus was speaking against them, speaking judgment against them. And so they try to trick Jesus into saying something unlawful. Verse 20, they watched closely and sent spies who pretended to be righteous so they could catch him in what he said to hand him over to the governor's rule and authority. But in verse 26, they weren't able to catch him in what he said in public. And being amazed at his answer, they became silent. There's this back and forth kind of punches being thrown back and forth between Jesus and the Pharisees. And then we find Jesus saying in verse 45, right before the widow's might, while all the people were listening. Now, again, this isn't like two people, thousands of people listening. And he says, beware of the scribes who go around in long robes who love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, the places of honor at banquets. What do they do? They devour widows' houses and say long prayers just for show. These, Jesus says, will receive harsher judgment. Then you have the widow's might, and then you have Jesus predicting the destruction of the temple. Contextually, what's happening? 
Well, I believe what's quite clear, what's happening is that Jesus is condemning the Pharisees. That's what's going on. As we, as we lead up to the widow's gift, we find Jesus condemning, 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 condemning. Judgment, criticism against the Pharisees, the scribes, the leaders of Israel. And so the poor widow's gift is not an example of giving. It's not like this bright light in the midst of this darkness around it, this judgment around it, but rather it's the example or the illustration of how they devour widows' houses. It's the illustration, it's the example of exactly what Jesus is talking about when it comes to the Pharisees. In other words, Jesus looks up, he's teaching, doing ministry, and he sees the rich giving, and he sees this poor widow giving, and he's not teaching then, here's how you should give, but pointing out the destructive teaching and the abusive teaching of the Pharisees and the scribes. How they devour the very people they were supposed to protect and care for. See, in the ancient world, uh, the widows, they're in a desperate situation economically and legally. They were at the mercy of the state for the most part. They had either little to no income and no power in the courts. And so the Bible is not, uh, it's not by accident that the Bible is singling out widows as a particular object or group of people of concern and compassion that Christians or the Jews were to have. You know, James tells us that the essence of true religion is to take care of widows and orphans in their distress. They're not to be neglected, but they are to be honored, respected, and helped whenever help is needed. And the widows would look to the scribes. They would look to the scribes as one who would come and speak comforting words into their life. They would look to the scribes as those who were to be the advocates of, of justice and mercy. And they invested trust and hope in their religious leaders, as many people do, as you should. However, what you find is these scribes, these Pharisees failed to help the widows as God had commanded. And in fact, they became their main exploiters. And they set aside the commands of God for the sake of their own traditions and more importantly, for their own greed to make money. And so Jesus He's continuing his rebuke. He's continuing to condemn these men. And he's using the widow as an example, highlighting the abuse, the exploitation, the victimization of some of the most vulnerable in their society. So there's the context. But fourth, there's a last reason I think that is also important. It's the conclusion that one must reach about giving from this passage. If we're gonna use this passage to teach about giving, I believe then it requires us to accept a very particular or specific conclusion. The conclusion that this is just a sacrificial, a lesson about sacrificial giving, though that is in the Bible, that is not what is being taught here. You can't just conclude it's just simply about sacrificial giving. But if the widow is the example of giving, then what we must conclude is that we are literally to give all we have to God. Not figuratively, literally. She didn't figuratively give everything she had. She literally gave all that she had. And if we look at Jesus commending her for giving all that she had, then we are to do likewise. 
As one commentator put it, the only real option is that the gift that truly pleases God is everything. And if Jesus is teaching a lesson on giving, it seems that the lesson is to give everything you have, go home, and then in her case, starve. She had no money to buy food. Now you can say, well, yeah, God might well take care of her. Yeah, but that's not the point of the text. If the point of the text is to give like the widow gave, then that means we must go and give everything that we have. See, the scripture does teach that we are to give sacrificially, that we are to be generous, but it also teaches that we're to be good stewards. And Paul, in 2 Corinthians, he instructs the church as they are giving to the needs in Macedonia that what they are to do is they are to look at what they have and they're to set aside something in proportion with what they possess. There's careful consideration and prayer that goes into what we are to give. Now, if God leads you to give all that you have, then praise God. But to say that the standard of giving is to give everything that we have, not figuratively like we know that God owns everything, he owns a cattle on a thousand hills, and that we are just to be good stewards of it, but literally to give everything we have, then we must go and get rid of all that we possess. That's how I would understand the actual teaching of that passage if we're going to teach about giving. You can disagree, but that's how I would see it. And so for those, for those four reasons and others, I think the better interpretation is not that this is a lesson about giving, but rather this is just a continual continuation of Jesus' rebuke and condemnation of the Pharisees and an illustration highlighting that exploitation. So what is this passage teaching more specifically? Well, I just want to look at two things, or one thing, but broken into two parts, is this, is Jesus sees. He sees what's going on here. And there's two groups of people that he sees. First is he sees the abused in verse one and two. He looked up, he saw the rich drop their offerings in the temple treasury, and he saw a poor widow dropping in two tiny coins. That Jesus saw the abuse and the exploitation, the victimization of people in the nation of Israel. He saw what was going on. He sees the abuse that's happening today, all the abuse that's happening, whether it's in the church or outside the church, he sees people who are abused, who are victimized. And he not only sees it, but he cares about you. He cares about those who are exploited. He's not just looking at the situation and Jesus is just kind of commenting about what's going on today. You know, he's just kind of like reporting the news or something to the, fair, to, to the disciples. He is angered by the abuse. He cares about those who are destitute, about those who are taken advantage of. Psalm 27:10, even if my father and mother abandon me, the Lord cares for me. Psalm 10, verse 14, the helpless one entrusts himself to you. You are a helper of the fatherless. Psalm 34, the Lord is near the brokenhearted. He saves those crushed in spirit. We know that James says that genuine, true religion is to help widows and orphans in their distress. That God cares. He sees. But he also sees the abuser. You know, there's a rule among the rabbis that the scribes, they were not allowed to receive money for their teaching. They could not be paid for their teaching. But in order to get around that, what the scribes would do is they would just solicit donations. They would just ask people to, to give, you know, uh, solicit some donation to their kind of teaching or for their teaching. Not saying you have to pay, but would you? 
And often what they would do is they would take advantage of the desperate situation of the widows. So they would befriend these widows. See, they know they're, they're in a vulnerable situation. And they know that the widows are to look for, to them for security, for help, for comfort. And so they would go to these widows. Remember, Jesus says they would devour the widows' houses. And for a show, they would make these lengthy prayers. And so can you just imagine what's going on? They're going to these widows' long, lengthy prayer for this widow. And then, would you mind donating to me? See, one of the best ways to kind of get into people's pocketbook is to at least act like, pretend like you care about them. And what was happening is these lengthy prayers, this befriending of these ladies, was just camouflaged for their real intentions, which was just to get money to use them. And Jesus sees this. He knows what is happening. That no matter how hard these scribes and Pharisees tried, that Jesus saw their heart. They could walk around in long, lengthy robes. They could sit in places of honor. They could pray these long, wonderful prayers. They could wear these giant phylacteries. They could do whatever they wanted to do to try to cover up their hypocrisy. But there was nothing they could do that Jesus saw right through it. And as R.C. Sproul says, Jesus utters a dreadful warning that such men will be punished most severely. That Jesus condemns those who use God's word and who use their position to take advantage of others. And the result is severe judgment. Severe punishment. Jesus was never harder or harder on nobody else in the land of Israel other than those, who, than those in the position of leadership who are to be teaching the word of God, shepherding the people of God. That their hypocrisy and their abuse, Jesus did not sit back, but he engaged in. And he pointed it out. And he was angered that his father was being used, that his name was being used for profit and gain at the expense of people who are in desperate situations, who are weaker, who could be taken advantage of. That what we learn is that Jesus hates hypocrisy and abuse, the peddling of the word of God for profit and gain. So what do we do? What should we do? Well, number one is this, back to the context. Allow the context to rule your interpretation. In an article called The Widow's Might or Widow's, Widow's Plight, Andre Reisner, he says this, uh, this story is a good example of a common problem in biblical interpretation. Is that our traditional use of a text can blind us from seeing anything other than what we've always seen. So, We've always just heard this text used in this way about a lesson for giving. And so we aren't open to or even cognizant of that maybe that's not actually the right way to interpret this text. And so what oftentimes needs to happen is we are coming to the word of God. I've done this so many times where I'm like, oh yeah, the, I just use this text to teach this thing. And then there's been so many situations where I actually have to teach on the text and you begin to study it. And you're like, wait a minute. That is not what it's saying. 
Like I've heard that again and again and again and again. And I've taught that again and again. And I'm like, that's not what this is actually saying. And the same thing has happened to me with this passage. And so oftentimes we have to step back and we have to start with the context. I'm sure you've heard uh, this phrase, context is king. It's king. So when you're the hermit, a good hermeneutic approach to uh, interpreting the word of God is understanding the context. You must be clear in the context. And the context starts with, okay, what, where is it at within the writing of that passage? So what are the verses that precede it and follow it? But sometimes that isn't enough. Like we see with Luke, you have to go beyond just the verses that precede and follow. And you look at the greater context. You look at a couple chapters before and you see this flow, this argument, if you will, that Luke is making. This accusation and condemnation, this rebuke of the Pharisees just continues again on and on and on and on. This judgment against the nation of Israel. And sometimes you need to look at not just the context, a few chapters around, but even the context of the entire book. And then the testament in which that book sits in, and in the context of the entire Bible. See, oftentimes we strip passages verses out of their context and when we do so we're not even realizing it we come to all kinds of wild conclusions like you've heard people say you can use the bible to justify anything and that is true if you pull it out of its context you can justify anything literally it's not hard to justify drugs murder whatever like you can figure it out you just pull a verse out and so the Bible quite literally gets used to justify all kinds of things. You remember a few weeks ago, Dan shared a TikTok video of the guy using Lazarus in John chapter 11 to justify homosexuality. As Lazarus came out, Jesus says to Lazarus, come out, you should come out. And it's just sick and disgusting. It's a total misuse, misappropriation of the word of God. If you understand, one, you look at that example, of what's, or that story of what's going on, Lazarus actually came back to life, like he was dead. Now, what is the point of that miracle? Well, if you understand the book of John, John writes, he shows miracle, 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 miracle. Why? Because his whole case, his whole point is to point to Jesus being the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. And John is meticulously, strategically, giving example after example of why we should believe Jesus is God, who's now come into the flesh to die for the sins of the world. And so Lazarus is an example of that Jesus not only has the power over to give the blind their sight or to give hearing back to the deaf or to heal the, the, the paraplegic, but Jesus actually can bring people back to life. And not just can he bring people back to life physically, but more importantly, spiritually, he can bring life. Not come out and identify yourself as gay or whatever else. That's not what he's teaching. In fact, that's in direct conflict with the rest of the Bible. The greater narrative, the greater teaching of the word of God. Or I love uh, Matthew 18, 20. It's one of my favorite uh, verses to be taken out of context. For wherever or where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. You know, this is uh, well known to be used for people to justify why they don't need to come to church. It's like, well, I got my one friend and my other friend. There's two, three of us, and Jesus is here, so we're good to go. Or as one guy uh, told me one time, 
this is, I've never heard anybody say this, and it was, uh, it was a situation where this guy, he was coming around and his girlfriend and they were uh, living together, and so there's um, some conversations with them about uh, if you're gonna claim to be Christians, there's a particular way in which you're to engage relationally with one another, and to sleep together uh, is actually sin, uh, it's against what God has laid out as righteous and holy. And so uh, you guys need to separate, move out, and stop sleeping with one another. And he said, well, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I'm there among them. You're like, what? Like, <laughs> so his, his, he used Matthew 18, 20 to justify sleeping with his girlfriend. I'm like, bro, you are creative. I'll give you that, but you are wrong. <laughs> you are very wrong. The context of that verse is actually talking about church discipline and rendering a verdict decision when it comes to discipline in the church. And it's wildly taken out of context all the time to justify all kinds of things. Or Matthew chapter 7, do not judge. There we go, don't judge. <laughs> it's the worst thing you could do. But you read the context of Matthew 7, and there's no way Jesus is saying you should never make a judgment about someone or something. In fact, in Paul, he tells us we should make judgments about who we should be friends with because good company corrupts good, or bad company corrupts good morals. Like we should be careful who our best friends are and such. And so the Bible is used all the time to come to irrational, illogical conclusions as it relates to the context of the Bible, and it's because we don't actually understand the context. We don't start with good, the good hermeneutical principle of context is king, and you must look at the context or you can come to all kinds of bad conclusions, and you begin to teach things that are not true. And I've been there, we've all been there, at least accidentally we've done that. It doesn't make you a false teacher per se, right? You just don't understand what's being taught, and so you've got to adjust. And so we need to look at what is the context. And I think when you look at the context of this passage, again, it leads us to a different conclusion. This is not about giving. This is about rendering judgment and condemnation, a rebuke of what's happening in Israel. Number two is expose abuse. Expose the injustice. What Jesus is teaching is that the religious system set up by the Pharisees, the scribes, it was abusive, it was unjust. It was using and abusing the weakest people in society, especially, and it was exploitation to the core, an example of injustice taking place at the hands of a religious elite in the name of God. And so what does Jesus do? He exposes it. Over and over we find Jesus calling out, confronting, pointing out, exposing abuse, injustices, the corruption that was taking place in the religious system of his day, in Judaism. It's the least we could do. The least we can do is point out abuses, abusive teachings, abusive teachers, the exploitation of people, Abuses, abusive things that are happening in our own society. The least we could do is speak out against it. Certainly it goes beyond that, but surely it can't be less than that. Now I'm not gonna get into all the practicals of how that necessarily applies, but the principle, the idea of we should be willing to step into a position to expose abuse, expose injustices that are happening, especially in our church and even beyond. And we see this again and again throughout church history. You think about Martin Luther, the Catholic Church, 
selling of indulgences. The idea is that if you give money, then you can purchase your loved ones from purgatory. Purgatory, a holding place for those who have died that have not yet made it to heaven. As I was taught growing up, you need to be cleaned off a bit more so you can go to heaven. That was the thing. So what you could do is you could purchase your loved one's freedom from purgatory by paying, giving money. And like modern religious televangelists, the priests of that day, they would, would sell this type of thinking through fear tactics just to make money. And so Martin Luther, he saw this pious defrauding of the faithful, as he called it, as intolerable. And like any true pastor, Luther was outraged at what was happening, and he railed against the indulgences, posting his 95 theses, condemning that along with other deadly aberrations that were taking place in the life of the church, sparking what is known as the Reformation, thus effectively changing how we experience church and God. And this has to continue in our day as well. The prosperity movement being one of many examples, the word of faith movement both tied together, lead the list at taking money from the most desperate, weak, sick, poor people in the promise of health, wealth, and prosperity. I've shared this before, but a, a guy that I had, was spending time with and reaching out to, he was living with his son, one bedroom apartment, I don't mean like a studio apartment down here, but a one-bedroom apartment where the heat barely worked, where things did not smell good, uh, things did not look good, amongst drug infestation in the apartment complex. And I remember going to his place and sitting there, and I walked in one day and seeing on his television a televangelist. And then we began to talk, and we began to realize that this man was giving money every month to these televangelists. Planting a seed, as they call it, seed money. You give some money to us, and what God will do is he will reward you, and he will fulfill all your desires. You will no longer be sick and weak and desperate and poor, but you'll be healthy and wealthy and prosperous. But just like any good Ponzi scheme, the one who's giving loses more, and the one who is preaching becomes more rich. It's demonic. It's satanic. And money has always been at the heart of satanic religion. And consequently, the abuse of the poor by false religious systems not only was happening in Jesus' day, but it's happening in our own day. You turn on the channel, Joe Osteen, Criffle Dollar, you know, Kenneth Copeland, Joyce Meyer, Paula White, they're all just wicked. Prospering. Telling people things that are just patently not true. And how do they get away with it? Well, they just strip the Bible out of its context. They take verses and they say, this is what it says. If you give, God will bless you in return. Well, sure, but that doesn't mean that he's going to give you everything you want. He doesn't mean he's going to give you all the money that you want, the, the, the job that you want. It doesn't mean that that's what it, it's going to happen. But it works in our society, in a prosperous society. But yet people's lives are being destroyed, ravaged. And what the word of God does is it calls us to warn those who teach and those who are following such teaching. 
that there is grave and eternal danger ahead, that we should warn with compassion and love, but with clarity, that this will take you to hell. This is not life. This is not what the scripture teaches. That we should be vocal and stand up about issues of exploitation and abuse, whether in the church or even in the culture. That we are the pillar of truth, the light of the world. And if we forsake such positions, if we fail to expose what is wrong and to preach what is biblical, what is true, we fail to be that, the pillar of truth, the light of the world. And this requires courage and boldness and love and humility. But brothers and sisters, we are to stand on the word of God. And at times that means we are to engage in correction and conflict in the hopes that people would repent and turn to what is right and true. Lastly, number three is that recognize that grace is enough. As I said earlier, Judaism began to teach or move in this direction of you could earn a blessing from God for the favor of God is effectively relationship with God through what you do, through your good works, through your giving. And so it's probably safe or at least reasonable to assume that this woman, like the rich, like the Pharisees and scribes, gave in order to gain, to earn eternal life, rather than giving because God himself granted or grants eternal life to those who believe. They didn't see grace as enough. Grace was all that, could, that grace was all that could save them from God's wrath against their sin, that nothing could save them from their sin. No amount of giving could remove the punishment for their sin. And likewise, I'm sure there's some of you here this morning that you think, what you're thinking is, I need to do certain things in order for God to have favor on my life, for God to forgive me. But what the scriptures teach is there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do. There's no work that is good enough to end of yourself to pay for your sin. There's only one who has done a good work to pay for our sin, and that is Christ. And what Christ did is he came in the flesh, God in the flesh, and he offered his life. Jesus lived a sinless, perfect life, and therefore he could offer his life to pay for our sin. That it says that our sin was put on him, that he bore our sin on his body. And Jesus was crushed, Jesus was broken, Jesus' blood was shed so that our sin could be forgiven. He was forsaken by his Father so that we would not be. It is the grace of God, that God made a way for us to be reconciled to him, to have peace with him. As Paul says, for you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. See, we have no ability to boast in our salvation because our salvation doesn't come from us. It comes from him. That God grants salvation to those who put their faith in the work of Christ. And likewise, that means as Christians, there is nothing more that we can do or have to do when it comes to our own sin, that we are covered by the blood of Christ, that we are forgiven of all sin in Christ. That when we sin, we just look to the cross, we repent and look to what Jesus has done for us. There's no work that we must do. There's no 
thing that we must accomplish. Jesus has accomplished everything for us. He's accomplished salvation, forgiveness of sin for us through his sacrificial death and through his resurrection. So I'd invite you this morning, if you have not put your faith in Christ, to repent of your sin and trust in Jesus, that Jesus came and died to pay for your sin, that he rose again three days later, showing he conquered death and defeated sin, and that you can be reconciled to God, that you can have peace with God, and that you can have the joy of God in your life. And how does that come about? Well, it's through faith in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, just so much for your mercy and grace. And we do ask, God, that you'd help us as we study your word to understand the context, Lord, that we'd be careful and precise. God, to make sure that we are dividing your word rightly. Lord, we do ask for grace and knowledge, wisdom on how to, God, expose and deal with just the abuses and exploitation in our own culture, our own just churches around the world, around our community. God, just give us wisdom as to what that even looks like. We ask, God, that you would just help us to see that your grace is enough. It is sufficient. God, there's nothing more to do. The work has been done, Jesus. And so we just thank you. We love you. We pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.